week in this series, we said Paul made a turn. He made a turn to talk in part about the particular situation that was happening in this church in Philippi. These were great Christians. They'd gone through a lot. They uh, had a lot of potential. They had their focus set right. But within the church, there was a bit of a little schism going on. In particular, there's a couple ladies that were having some quarreling, it appears to give reference to later in the letter. So Paul, sitting in prison, is exhorting them as they're a part of this church in a city a thousand miles away to not allow dissension and disunity to break down the gospel of Jesus Christ. He himself was not allowing his challenges and his struggles of being imprisoned to break down the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward. And he couldn't comprehend how a church could let dissension and quarreling break down the power of the gospel going forward. And so one of the key verses that we looked at last week as he made this transition is this verse in um, Philippians 1.27. Then whether I come and see you, because he didn't know if he'd get out of prison or not, or only hear about you in my absence, because he was absent from their church, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And we were pretty hard and adamant last week. I sort of had an edge on me a little bit last week about us not allowing how we operate as Christians to keep the beauty of the gospel and the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ from the people who need it. In other words, may we represent in the body of Christ the beauty of the good news that Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave, and he can transform people that we have hope, that sins can be forgiven, that we can start anew, that we can see dissensions fall by the wayside, that there can be a spirit of unity and harmony. All the beauty that comes from the gospel, not only in this life, but the life to come, that we would protect the sanctity of that by being a body of people that are unified, standing firm in one spirit and striving together. Critical. Because Satan knows that if the church functions as God wants the church to function, that he's in trouble. He's in trouble. The church really is the hope of the world. Because we steward the life-changing, transforming gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. And we steward it in a very precious way. So you may think that you're just venting or, or getting your frustrations out about this person or I'm not going to be involved in that or do this or I'm going to go here, there, whatever. And it's like, wait, wait, wait a second. This isn't about you. This is about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason Paul could say that I'm in chains for Christ and he could do hashtag joy in Christ is because his hope and his joy was not anchored in his personal circumstances but it was anchored in the eternal purposes of what God was doing. And so if you want to get out of the doldrums in your own life, away from some of the, the challenges of where to from here, and I don't know how to get out of this situation, get yourself aligned more with the purposes of Christ and what he's doing in our world, all right, than maybe what's going on in your own life. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about what's going on in your own life or he can't work and minister there, even as we've heard testimony here today. But where our focus needs to be set is on standing firm together in one spirit, striving together for the gospel and the purposes of Jesus Christ. And Paul was consumed with that. 
he starts to get very practical in this letter then about how to retain that unity and that beauty, all right? He steps in in chapter 2, verse 1, and says this, Therefore, church, in Philippi, church in the Temecula Valley, wherever your church may be, if you're here visiting today, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Now, I want to pause here because the word if is like, well, maybe, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that you have a relationship with him, that you're part of his body stewarding the gospel? Maybe, do you have any encouragement? That's not what he's saying. It's a sort of rhetorical question because he's been challenging them with this great hope of standing firm in a spirit and striving together. He says, now, if, if you have any encouragement, because you do have encouragement, You have a lot of encouragement. Sit down and think about the encouragement you have from being united with Christ. You may not know all the famous people in the world you'd like to get to know. You may not even know your boss very well, and you'd like to so you could get a promotion. But you know Christ, and you're united with him in purpose. If you're encouraged by that, which you should be encouraged by that as a believer in Christ, then look forward to what he has to say. But he's not done with the ifs. He says, if you have any comfort from his love, if you have any common sharing in the spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion. Now, all those words you can take because those words are true of you as a Christ follower. And if you're not a Christ follower here this morning, it's a really good reason to become one. Because in Christ, he doesn't steal your joy, ruin your life. He gives you life and he gives you encouragement. He gives you comfort through his love. He has a, there's a common sharing of spirit. The reason we can care for one another when you do like an open mic and you share about testimonies or what God's doing and you have empathy is because there's this common sharing in one spirit we have as the body of Christ. And if you have any tenderness and compassion that comes from Christ, you do have that, don't you? It's there. You don't have to go purchase it at Costco. It's a part of your life as a believer in Christ reading his word, spending time with him, spending time with others that are seeking to follow him, encouragement and comfort and common sharing and tenderness and compassion. He knew the church in Philippi to be that kind of church. And he says, therefore, seeing that you have these things, if you have any of these things, which you do, he says, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. It's not complete, Paul. No, it's not complete because of what I hear going on. I hear about the schisms and I hear about the double-mindedness and I hear about some of the the back-talking. He says, listen, then make my joy complete by now being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. So he's speaking straight to them, challenging them to come together, to come together in unity, to come together in Harmony of spirit to come together in purpose, to come together around Christ's love. So, traps of the enemy to tear Christians apart. Traps of the enemy to tear Christians apart? Let me just list a few. The first is the critical attitude of looking down on others. Don't fully know what was going on, what the scoop was in the church at Philippi, but there was some looking down upon one another and not thinking that the other person was right and where they needed to be. 
And it's one of the main enemies. Why? Because it breaks apart the unity. It starts to tear apart the common sharing and the love and the encouragement, the joy ultimately, is when we begin to have a critical attitude of looking down on others. Now, there's not one person, and I haven't been following you this week, whether online or traveling in a car, there's not one person in this room, including myself, that is not good at doing that, looking down on people. It's human nature. It's human nature to look askew at somebody and go, I can't believe that person's that way. They may not even done anything to you. But you start to have a critical attitude of looking down on people. It's part of our sinful nature that thinks ill of people. And part of the reason is because it helps us feel better. If I can push someone down, then I can feel a little bit above them. It's a critical attitude. And Paul's addressing it here. And he says, make my joy complete because this should not be. But we need to be wise into the snares and the traps of the enemy. Philippians 4.8. Some of you are familiar with this passage. It's a beautiful passage. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, we usually take that passage and think, well, well, we need to think on things above and we need to think godly thoughts and we need to think worshipful thoughts, those kinds of things. But do you realize that that passage there was spoken in the context of people relationships? So instead of just thinking about it, and it's true, you can think about it in terms of God and goodness. Think about the person you have a tendency to look down on right now, or maybe you've got a little bit of conflict going on with. The person that you put your head at the pillow at night and you're going like, I, just, I don't even want to think about them anymore and what they did or what they're doing or not doing. At that moment, you're having a critical attitude of looking down on someone, and the scriptures say that we need to think on the things that are true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, contextualize this spoken word, this challenge, when you have a critical edge on you. And some days, I don't know about you, some days, I don't know, because of rest, because of agendas and overwhelming things in life, I have more of an edge on me than other days. Do you have edgy days? And where your mind goes on edgy days is not in good places, right? Your mind needs to go to better places. And Paul's exhorting them. If you have this beautiful stewarding of the gospel and these things are true of your life, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete and don't allow the enemy in to be able to break about the unity. Verse 3 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Guess what? Those two things right there, selfish ambition, Ambition and vain conceit are the feeders for being able to look down on people. So, goes on to say, rather in humility, this is what you need to do. You need to value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't honestly look at someone and say, you know what they just did or what they're doing? is a lot of immaturity, all right? You're not negating what has happened 
but you are looking at them and you are valuing them in many ways. And I have to do this. I'm like, you know, when I was their age, they are a lot more mature than when I was their age and what they're going through in their response, right? You are valuing them and thinking the best of them in what could become true, all right? In humility, in humility, value others above yourself. That what needs to be happening in their life is more important than what needs to be happening in my life. Not looking merely to your own interest, but to the interest of others. So we'll add two. Traps of the enemy that tear Christians apart. One, the critical attitude of looking down on others. But then those two things that feed that number one, we'll put them down as number two and number three. The pride of life thinking we are better than others. Thinking that we are better than others. I have to take stock that I am a sinful fallen human being and but by the grace of God, there go I in many situations. And I am not thinking that I am better than someone. I realize that God's worked in me and changed and redeemed me. But that area that they need to be changed in, they can get there by God's help. I'm not better than the other person. The whole selfish ambition and, and vain conceit idea. And then number three is the selfishness of placing our interest over others. So. Paul's getting real practical here. I don't know you need a pastor to sort of unpack this passage all that much. In fact, that's sort of one of the nice things about Philippians. It sort of just sort of preaches itself as you read through it and prayerfully pray through it, right? There's traps of the enemy to ensnare Christians to tear the unity and the bond of uh, common sharing apart. And it happens in the area of pride and selfishness. And we are called to keep in check with that. Now, chapter 2 has this incredible, incredible passage in it. In fact, it's been studied by theologians uh, for centuries, and you can go all different kinds of directions with it. We're now going to step into it, but I want to step into it in the context of which Paul stipulated it. He's now exhorting them not to allow division. And he's now exhorting them to remember who they are in Christ and step out with a spirit of maturity and not allow the enemy to tear apart the body. And you may think it's a church body. You can think of that way. Think about your family. Maybe your family's being torn apart. Maybe there's a workplace environment that's being torn apart. Maybe it's some social settings being torn apart relationship-wise. And the exhortation comes that we need to set aside selfishness Set aside pride, look to the interests of others, value them and who they really are can, and can be in God. And then Paul sticks this incredible illustration, front and center. He's got some others coming up in this chapter, but the front and center illustration is, guess, guess what? In your relationships with one another, Philippians 2.5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, part of me is very encouraged by this illustration. Then there's another part of me that goes, oh, no, don't bring up Jesus. None of us are Jesus. I can't do what Jesus did. And he says, no, you need to have this in mind. In your relationships with one another, have the, 
and, and it says here the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And I think King James says the same mind as Christ Jesus. It's that you have this ability not to mimic Jesus. This is key. Not to mimic Jesus. But you have Jesus. You have this mind of Christ in you. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's not a new and improved life you need. It's the replaced life you've been given. Not your life, but his life. And so Christ dwells within you, Christian. So don't, it's just this, this isn't one of those cheerleading messages like suck it up, be better, be nice to people. I mean, you can go there, I suppose, but I don't know about you, but I don't get very far with that. Because there's this striving, oh, new and improved, i got to be better, i got to be like Jesus. I can't th- believe he threw out the example of Jesus. But he doesn't say, you know, uh, in your relationships with one another, suck it up and be more like Jesus. He says, no. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset because you have the mind of Christ. The spirit of Jesus dwells within you as a Christ follower. And as a Christ follower, you have a replaced life and you can serve out of a, an overflow that maybe you're not aware of. And so it's not about trying to grab a hold of more of Jesus. It's about yielding and surrendering to the Christ that dwells within you. And so what he does is he comes to his people in Philippi, he comes to you and I in this church today, and he says, listen, don't allow the enemy to tear asunder your family, your, your job environment, your church relationships, because you have been given a different mind, a very different life. And it's the life of Jesus that dwells within you. You need to surrender to that life in all humility. And so then here is that famous passage. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I memorized it in an older NIV version. It says something to be grasped. And so it's depicting Christology here. That's why it's a a great theological section. And it's believed, by the way, that this little uh, ditty that he sort of rolls out is maybe a hymn, a Christian hymn of the day, because it just sort of has this free flowing to it, and it fits together. And there's not a lot of knowledge or information between the the early disciples and and some of the early church, and maybe some recorded documents and and some of those situations. And it's like, well, this could have been one of the very formative statements that the people who saw Jesus die and raised from the grave began to write down and then pass on to one another as they went out into the villages and the, and the um, through the highways, it's like, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. He was God who being in the very nature God. He was the very nature God. But he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or take advantage of. This idea of a very nature has to do with form, being in the very form, the very essence of God. He was not like God. He was not a God. He was the God. He was God in all ways, essence-wise, Jesus was God. And this is one of the foremost passages of Scripture. If you ever want to take somebody there who doubts that Jesus, is, Jesus was really divine, you take him to Philippians 2.6. And it says, Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, 
And it wasn't like, you know, a caricature of God or sort of like God or he was godly or he was a very spiritual person. He was a nice guru. No, he was God. But he didn't consider his equality with God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, something to be grasped or taken advantage of. What did he end up doing? It says this, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Does it sound familiar? You know this passage? He made himself nothing is a little tricky. It actually is better interpreted in some other places that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. He was divine God come in the flesh. This is front and center, the big word, incarnation, what Christmas is all about, right? God with us. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, the one who holds the stars in place, the one who keeps your heart beating right now, that very God came to this earth and took on the nature of a human being. And not just the nature of a human being, the nature of a servant to serve people. It's one of those kinds of things. Really? The God of the universe took upon himself human form and he humbled himself and he served. God did that. And if God did that, cannot you and I at least come close to letting that life that lives within us live through us in the crisis of the moment, especially in a relationship that's gone sour. He made himself nothing. Now, emptying himself is always an interesting concept. Did Jesus give up any of his divinity when he came to this earth? Answer that is no. He took upon himself humanity. And the emptying himself, I think, sometimes is like the idea of this is um, the form, is the cup, but there is um, rights that are established as being one who is divine. And so when he came to this earth, he emptied himself, he made himself nothing, he poured out not his rights, because he still has his rights as a divine person, he poured out his right to his rights. You got that? He gave up his rights to his rights. He emptied himself when he came here to be a part of the human race. How could he really become fully human unless he had emptied himself in one sense? He was fully divine. He was fully human. It wasn't a 50-50 deal. It was a 100-100 deal. We have a hard time understanding that with our ant-sized brains. But for God who created all things, he was able to do that. And he did that. He gave up his rights to his rights. He emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. I put the word renunciation with that. If you want to have unity and peace with your brother, your sister, your ex, your estranged children, your co-worker that's really a pain with the person in the church that you're a little rough with right now, you have to renounce your rights to your right. You're going like, Harry, this is not a very fun talk today. <laughs> Hashtag joy in Christ. You want to walk the road to finding joy? It's a strange thing. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and my sake will find it. 
the kingdom values and teaching are counterculture. They're counterculture. And so when you renounce your rights to your rights, God begins to work in a way in your own soul like he can't work when you're trying to grab your rights and defend yourself. Doesn't mean let people walk all over you, and I understand that, especially relationship. People have a tendency to do that. But it's the journey of the mind, the attitude. Instead of pushing people away, thinking down about them, gossiping about them, backbiting one another, you take the mind of Christ and you choose to give up your rights to your rights. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It wasn't only renunciation, there was humiliation in the truest sense of the word of being humble. He allowed himself to be put on a cross. That'd be like, you know, we wear crosses around our neck today as sort of a nice reminder of what Jesus did. But none of you came in wearing um, a picture of a Holocaust gas chamber around you or a picture of an electric chair. Those are hideous thoughts. That's what the cross was in that day. The God who gave up his rights to his rights, emptied himself, walked among us, lived, ended up dying on a cross. One of the most cruel, despicable kinds of means that anybody in society, you didn't even talk about it. A Roman citizen wasn't able, you couldn't crucify a Roman citizen on the cross because it was so bad, except there was a special decree by um, Caesar. Jesus. Renunciation. Humiliation. There's times when things are thrown at us and we just don't sit there and take it. We just yield and let the Lord be our defense. And sometimes there's pain and there's suffering in it. False accusation. Hate false accusation. You want to defend yourself. Sometimes God just says, hey, you, you stay good. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I told you about a friend of mine who's going through a traumatic crisis been two and a half year journey where he was a leader in a company and the company's CEO sort of got corrupt and he got swept up and being accused with the CEO and and some other people anyway he uh, and I had some correspondence this week and because uh, he's wanting me and I wrote him a, a letter to the judge because he's he ended up pleading out because he couldn't deal with the situation anymore and he's now facing uh, sentencing in July and so he asked me if one of many to write a letter of support to the judge that's going to be responsible for if he goes to prison or not. Great man of God he's been, tremendously powerful young man. I knew him in college and career ministry and journeying with him three years. And um, he had a statement. He said, you know, he says, I worried my whole life about my brand. And God said, you let go of your brand. I will take care of you. Sometimes you have to let go of your brand. Of who you want other people to think you are. And just trust God. That's what Jesus had to do on the way to the cross. In fact, this friend of mine, he, he sent me something else a week. And he, he just gave reference. He said, you know, he says, my whole life, I lived my whole life with people thinking I was better than I really was. And now people think I'm worse than I really am. He said, I didn't mind it when people thought I was better than I really was, but this really bothers me that people think I'm worse than I really am. 
And I thought, man, that's just true of all of us, isn't it? There's a humility. It's a righteous humiliation that God brings and you let go. And then the third here is the exaltation. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that's above every name. They knew there was one sacred name. Nobody said that name. Jesus took on that name. Because of the road that he traveled. The road he traveled was one of brokenness. The one of giving up his rights to his rights. Renunciation. The one of humility. Being obedient to death. Even death on a cross. But God exalted him to the highest place. And God will redeem your life from whatever place it is. You walk that good and faithful road. Came across a story about a good Bible preacher and teacher in America. His name was Ironside, H.A. Ironside. And I guess he ended up, he ended up uh, traveling up in Northwest and attending a church that he preached at some of his younger years and had a great community of people in that church. And uh, he got together with some of those people and, you know, they were doing all the remembrance and the encouragement of one another. And then he looked around that circle of people and he said, you know, where's so-and-so? Why isn't so-and-so a part of, of your guys' friendship anymore? And they all sort of hung their heads and they said, oh, yeah, he uh, he's not a part of church anymore. He left. And we did everything we could. We tried to acknowledge where we had you know, been wrong and we sought to ask for forgiveness. But he's just a stubborn old mule. And Ironside said, okay. He said, let me see what I can do. And so he went to visit this man while he was in that town. He knocked on the door. When he knocked on the door, he heard a door slam the back door. He uh, knocked again and lady opened the door, this guy's wife, and she invited him in, some pleasantries, and sat down, and he says, well, hey, is, is uh, your husband around? And she says, oh, no, he's, I'm sorry, he's, he's not in right now. And he said, oh, that's too bad. He says, I just really wanted to come and encourage him and connect with him. I'm only in town for a little while. And um, she says, well, I think maybe I know where he's at. I'm, let me see if I can get the kids to go get him. Sure enough, he walks in from the back door a little bit later. He sits down across from Ironside, and he he was cordial, but you could tell he was sort of awkward with this. And Ironside, he said, hey, he said, I want to come see you. I, I hear that uh, you're not a part of the church anymore, and that, and that some, you know, some things have happened there with the people that you hang with. And, and uh, the guy looks at him, he says, yeah, he says, you just don't understand. You understand what was going on, and um, they, you know, they weren't doing me right, and and I have my rights, and uh, I want my rights. And he started to tell Mr. Ironside about his side of the story, and Mr. Ironside said, "Would you just go with me to Scripture for a little bit before we talk about everything?" Guess where Mr. Ironside went? He went to the Philippians two passage. He talked about the example of Jesus 
that we are to have the mind of Christ. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he gave up his rights to his rights. And he humbled himself. Became obedient to death on a cross even for our salvation. So they shared and then they prayed. and He prayed over him in that early moments of their sharing. And after the prayer, the man kept his head buried in his hands for a while. And then he peeled his hands back away and his eyes were clouded. And he said, Mr. Ironside, he says, I'm sorry, I'm just a stubborn mule. Mr. Ironside came back and he said, well, that's what they told me you were, was a stubborn old mule. So you're both in agreement. You might be able to get along now. And he reconciled with his friends and they moved forward. But he had to do what the scriptures teach us to do. To not allow the enemy to destroy our unity, but to strive together. Standing firm in one spirit, upholding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Renouncing our rights, walking the road of humility, letting God be our defense, and then let God redeem. You know, friends, this is Valentine's week. I had the opportunity over many years to wrestle in my own marriage with what it means to have a good marriage. And I've also wrestled in counseling sessions with many people who have troubled marriages. I usually end up going to passage in Ephesians 5.21 that says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. A lot of people can get their dander up, old Midwestern term, about this whole thing of submitting. But friends, it's not about debasing yourself in a marriage, one to another at all. But submitting means to take the spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ that's in you, and let go of your rights to be right, and walk a road of humility for the sake of unity. And if we're ever to see our marriages become what they need to be, when you sit across your spouse on your Valentine's meal this week, whether eating out or eating in, you look at the spouse that God has given you and you lay down your life for your wife. You submit, you give up your rights for your husband to lead as he's called, you to, as he's called him to lead. It's not a trampling on top of one another. It's a mutual submission. It's a mutual respect. It's a mutual love. That is the bond that holds people together. So I sum it this way. In humility, let the mind of Christ protect unity in all relationships. 
by releasing your rights to be right, valuing others above yourselves and serving their interests. I'll read it again. In humility, let the mind of Christ protect unity in all relationships by releasing your rights to be right, valuing others above yourself and serving their interest. And then letting the Lord lift you up in his timing. Amen. Go out in your calm. We're going to close. Let me pray as a band comes up and we close this song. Lord Jesus, I ask here this morning if there's anyone wrestling big time with broken relationships, disunity, whether it's in a family relationship, a work relationship, or Lord, even a church relationship, that you would encourage and teach them how to allow your mind, your very essence that lives within them, if they're a Christ follower, to lead in the situation. Not to get trampled on, but to give up rights to rights as you surely did with your divinity and choosing then to serve others. Choosing to love as you loved us. And Lord, may you heal those relationships that are represented here today. And Lord, may you continue to heal those family units, those work environments. Lord, may you heal churches. And Lord, may you continue to protect our unity and heal our church as we move forward because we share, we carry, we steward your powerful gospel. And if that's a transforming gospel for the hurts and brokenness of people, then it needs to be reflected in our community here as a body. So Lord, bless us in that regards. Bless those individuals who are standing in a difficult place in their relationship with someone else today. Lord, may you use this week to bring transformation. For you are the holy God. You are the great God. And through you, we have hope in all situations. And that in your time, you will lift us up as surely as we lift you up and exalt you now, Lord, in worship and praise as we close in your name. Amen and amen. Ushers are coming to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings as well as your connect cards. Let's sing.